We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who show for the month of May 2023. He's Rob. I am indeed, and you're Dave. You threw me there. <laughs> I just thought I'd do something different. We've been doing this for eight years, so let's, let's mix <laughs> things up. And look, you're listening to the Doctor Who show. Tonight we are going to be talking about season 26. It's a deep dive into McCoy's last season, classic Who's last season, mm. as voted for by you, the listeners. But we've got news, we've got short topics, we've got a lot of feedback from you as well. Rob, are you well? I am very well, Dave, and I'm itching to go. This is going to be a good one, I think. No, I, th- I think it is. Look, I'm here. Winter is definitely approaching in Australia. It is dark, cold and wet, but that's fine. We have Doctor Who to keep us going. And so we'll dive straight in. Um, first of all, Rob, mm-hmm. since we last recorded, I have been to Sydney. I have met Sophie Aldred. I've hung out with Phil and Dwayne from the Sirens of Audio podcast. And because there's a lot to say about that, I think we've agreed we're going to do a dedicated special episode on that hopefully in the next week or so yes yes we have hinted about it on twitter saying look we'll talk about it on the show but it won't be this show folks it's gonna be its own show an extravaganza yeah absolutely it's 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 far too much to do as a short topic it would take over most of the episode so keep an eye out for that coming soon because i have a lot to say about what was a you know a really really fun day and a really fun experience but that said we are by coincidence talking about season 26 and i may throw a few (laughs) well sophie told me comments into the mix (laughs) name dropper name dropper (laughs) absolutely if you can why not I said we had a lot of news. Let's dive in. A trailer has dropped, Rob. It has indeed. And it has given us a small little taste of the specials that are to come with David Tennant and Catherine Tate. It leads with a line, why did this face come back? Well, because our RTD cast David Tennant. That's the reason. <laughs> I guess there'll be more to it than that. Maybe this is going to be the arc of these three episodes. Why Why is this Doctor come back? Which I think we kind of speculated about anyway, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. A lot of fans have as well. Um, but as to, as to why he's come back, who knows? Yeah, so I think that's going to be a bit of a thing across the episodes. Uh, look, it showed us that people we expected to be in it are going to be in it. Neil Patrick Harris is now trailer official. I think we you know pretty well knew that. We'd seen set photos. Mm-hmm. But we did learn the names of the episodes, Rob. Starbeast. Yes, which we all assume is based on a comic, which I'll talk about a bit later in this show. Yes, uh, Wild Blue Yonder. The Neil Patrick Harris episode could mean anything. <laughs> And the final one is The Giggle. Yeah, that's that's intriguing. That's got a lot of people saying, what's all that about? It, it is. Look, when I first saw the trailer, I thought it was just Giggle. But now I know it is The Giggle. So hmm. that means, you know, is it a planet? Is it a life form? Is it a monster? Is it a person? Is it a Time Lord? Who knows? It's like, it's like something DC would do about The Joker. It sounds like a comic series like The Giggle. You know, it sounds sinister. Yeah, look, it does a bit, it does a bit, and look, it's it's Doctor Who. It's a regen story, so it's going to be dark in some level. I mean, the Doctor, I assume, and look, we've made assumptions before and been wrong about all this wild cape we're on now, but I assume we're getting Shooty Gatwa, the 15th Doctor, 
at the end of this. So The Giggle joins a long line of stories like Planet of the Spiders and the War Games <laughs> uh, and The Giggle. Well, one thing we know for sure, Dave, and this is absolutely for sure, the footage of Shudi Gatwa saying, can someone tell me what the hell is going on? And he's just against a, a background of clouds and such. There is actual background to him there, and they covered it over with clouds. RTD has said this. So, as to not spoil us, there is something going on behind him when he says, what's going on here? But in that clip, it just looks like some clouds. That's very clever. That's that's Marvel levels of deception and caution. I know, I it's, know. Uh, it's, it's going back to, you know, the trailer for Infinity War where they edited out some of the Infinity Stones from Thanos' gauntlet so we wouldn't have plot spoilers. That's mm-hmm. that's intense. So, look, I, I'm, I don't plan to speculate any further about the trailer. It's, it's there. It's got some shots. It doesn't really tell us anything about the episodes. I'm ready to dive in when the time comes. Very good. You have some, I won't say sad news, that's over the top, but but disappointing news for us, Rob. Yeah, I do, Dave. I mentioned on last month's show that I'd confirmed with Universal down here that it had no plans to release season nine of Classic Doctor Who. So we made a YouTube video about it and so on, threw it out there, 13,000 hits. Good stuff. We now have put out a sequel to that video because one of our listeners wrote a letter to Universal, a proper snail mail letter, and got a proper snail mail reply to the effect that Universal is not only not just doing season nine of classic Doctor Who anytime soon, it's actually bailing on Doctor Who completely. It's done. The market's too rough, this letter says, literally, to our to our listener. This is all in the video. So we, we put out the video with that news. That's had thousands of hits too. And it's basically vindication because in that first video, I was saying, look, folks, here's a situation. I recommend you buy season nine from the UK. And I was kind of sticking my neck out there because at the time, Universal could have popped up and said, psych, it's just late. We're doing it three months from now, you know, or something like that. And then I would have made all these people buy very expensive UK copies for nothing. But this second video hammers at home on paper from Universal. Universal is done and there's no cavalry on the horizon. It's a very different situation to the handover between Roadshow and Universal back in 2019 when Roadshow said, look, we're giving it up. And Universal put their hand up and said, yeah, we know and we're taking it on. There's just nothing on the horizon. So are we without Doctor Who on physical media going forward or will a distributor pop up in months ahead? Will they go back and do season nine? All those questions are still up in the air, Dave. Yeah, look, that is disappointing news, but I can't say it's news that shocks us. And we did talk about this at length on the last episode. Um, I did have an extraordinary experience in Sydney where during one of the early breaks in the day, I was standing fairly near a merchandise dealer and somebody was on their phone watching a video. And Mm -hmm. out of this guy's phone, I heard your voice. Ah. And I I, I sort of turned and looked at this guy, sort of like, okay, that's weird. And he was obviously chatting to the guy who was behind the table stand. And the guy behind the table stand said, yes, that's your podcasting partner. And it's like, okay, not only did you know who he was, you know who I am, you know that's my partner. And that was that was really quite a um a bizarre experience. And he said, oh, you know, we've we've been talking about um the video Rob put out, and this guy who had multiple copies of season twenty four Blu-ray on his table said, I'm kind of with you. These things just aren't selling in Australia. Anybody who 
buys them wholesale, always has leftover copies. You go into any DVD store or Blu-ray store in the country and there's always spare copies of Doctor Who Blu-rays on special at reduced mm. rates. So I, I think that the market just isn't quite there for the numbers that need to make a big, sumptuous Blu-ray box set. And um, So that was, yeah, it was very interesting. I, th- I think genuinely this has been a big topic of conversation. You hadn't told me that story before. I'm, I'm quite... Uh quite amazed to hear that actually wow yes i want to get your live reaction to that ah yeah that that that's a wow moment but look yeah it's all about the revenue and possibly a smaller distributor can come on friend of the show brendan jones suggested network could come on board because they put out some pretty niche stuff in some very nice packaging i've thrown out madman you might agree with madman as well dave as possibly a distributor who would be interested with smaller revenues but we just don't have any news on that no network did do the goodies box set which we've been waiting on for a long time they've also done a lot of those very obscure bbc sitcoms so stuff like no job for a lady you know that sort of thing that you can really you know very very niche audiences so yeah they're definitely one that might might do it and might do uh, not not quite as as sexy a package um it might be a slightly watered down package but still a, a, a thorough package and, and look madman uh, is also definitely a possibility. He has a long track record with Doctor Who. I remember Tim from Madman when he was just a, a single retailer working out of a little warehouse in uh, wow. in 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 a Melbourne where we'd just pop along, and he he was sort of importing he imported a lot of stuff. Um, his his biggest imports were manga and um porn. Um, <laughs> but you know the stuff you couldn't get in a normal DVD shop, basically. Yeah. Um, but but he also would import a lot of the special stuff like. B5, Trek, Doctor Who, where fans wanted UK or American copies quicker and, you know, better quality than the local Australia knockoffs. So yeah. um, I, I do remember Madman going back to last century and, you know, popping along to get my Doctor Who tapes from him. And he's now a very successful distributor of um, movies and uh, pop culture generally. Absolutely. I think the anime side of the business has recently spun off to be crunchy roll in Australia, but but he still has all the movies and TV shows sort of side of distribution as Madman. So yeah, yeah. A- anime was definitely where he sort of you know made it big. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, he's he's very good at sort of picking picking things that don't have a large audience but have a dedicated audience where you know you're going to sell some tickets or sell some copies. Yeah, or is Disney just blocking physical media sales outside of the UK? Who knows? Yeah, look, who knows? Look, as we discussed on Twitter, Rob, we actually still don't know a lot about the Disney-BBC Doctor Who deal. No. We, we know that the BBC gets to broadcast new Who in the UK. We know that Disney will broadcast new episodes of Doctor Who outside of the UK, but outside of the UK, who has classic Doctor Who ownership, who has physical media ownership, who has seasons 1 to 13 of mm. of Doctor Who new series. Like, we don't quite know whether Disney starts at year zero with the next episode or it goes back to 2005, or does it go back to 1963? We don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> it is a mystery. Uh, something that's not a mystery is what Fraser Hines' next project is going to be, mm-hmm. and he is releasing a novelization of Evil of the Daleks. This dropped very recently, just in the last few days. I'm not quite sure what it is. Now, we know that John Peel did the Target novelization back in the mid-90s. That's this right. is apparently Fraser Hines's version, or one in which Fraser Hines dropped in a few paragraphs to a ghost-written copy. I don't know. <laughs> the blurb tends to suggest it's not a pure 
novelization of Evil of the Daleks. It starts with the moment at the end of Wheel in Space where the Doctor is showing Zoe the Evil of the Daleks that says, Jamie has to relive it, but suddenly they're off on a whole different adventure. And no one's quite sure what that means. It doesn't come out to the 26th of August. It's going to be out in hardback and audio. This could be really, really cool, or it could be an absolutely cynical money spinner. Um, I'm going to perhaps wait for a few more details and a few more reviews before I rush out and pre-order this. I'll say one thing about it, Dave. It's got a beautiful cover. It has got a beautiful cover. That is very true. It looks fantastic to look at because we've got that old logo back, of course, on all the new Who merchandise now. The Evil of the Daleks is written in a really shaky kind of 1960s script. The drawings of Jamie, the Doctor, Victoria, amazing. Uh, so it looks good. I can say that much. But as to as to why you would do this, it's it's a bit different. I'll say that much too. Look, has Fraser just always been thinking? I've got a book in me, and this is it. I I don't know. You know, is 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 this his follow up to Farms, Phillies, and Fornicating, whatever his book was, his biography? I can't remember. Um, we'll we'll find out. We will. Uh, Dave, I've got one piece of news to finish, and it's a quick one. Uh, the Paul Sprague Short Trips Contest is open at Big Finish, folks. It's open for about another month as I speak. This, of course, is a contest named after a Big Finish employee who passed away uh, far too young many years ago, and it searches for new talent via short story writing, and the winner gets their story actually produced as a Big Finish short trip. So if you think you have a cracking Doctor Who short story idea and can bang out a synopsis of it and a bit of a, a sample of how you would write the story, throw it all together, there's still time, or you'll be waiting another year to do it. Don't say, I didn't warn you. Very cool. I know a couple of people I follow on Twitter are thinking about putting something together. Are you thinking of putting something together, Rob? Funnily enough, this year I am, Dave. Um, oh, in past exciting. years it's Yeah, in past years it's come up and I've gone, oh, I should do that. And then I've just not had the time or just not a, a really killer idea in my head. And this year I have the killer idea and I'm actually writing the thing and I've written two and a half thousand words of it. I want to actually write the full 5,000 word story before I submit just so that I know I've done it. Very nice. I don't want to submit a synopsis and then have Nick Briggs call and say, okay, write the thing, Rob. And then I have a mental <laughs> blank. That would be a nightmare. I'm not saying I'm going to win the competition by any means, but it would be my nightmare. So I'm, I'm going in with the whole thing. Oh, uh, good luck. Yeah, thank you very much. I, if, if I don't win, I'll farm it out to a fanzine or something so it gets out there somehow. Yes, yes. I, I won't be. Uh, okay. I enjoy writing, but I'm very good at writing uh, non-fiction. And whenever I try to write fiction, it very quickly starts to read like nonfiction again. I just, <laughs> I just don't really have that that quite quite that 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 speed in me. So uh, I'll stick to my lane. I think. I'll tell you one thing. As I've started writing, I've switched into target mode, like nineteen eighties target mode, and it's actually really fun to read back. I'm like, I really absorbed something in those teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> I can write target books. <laughs> Does anybody in your book, in your story, have a shock of white hair or an old young face? Uh, no, no, but I, I won't say what doctor it is. Fair enough. Say. Fair enough. Yes. On to short topics, and I'll kick us off. Uh, before I watched all of season 26 for this podcast, I did take your advice, Rob, and went and bought a UK copy of season 9, which actually arrived in pretty prompt time, mm -hmm. and I got out and I watched that, and... I did enjoy watching it. There's some good stories in there. 
I've got to say, it did reaffirm for me that of the five Pertwee seasons, season nine is probably quite comfortably the weakest. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think it's terrible. As I say, there's some good stories, but it is it is the one that I think has a little bit of a weaker average and doesn't quite have the big classics that the other Pertwee seasons do. But but even a middle-order Pertwee is a very, very good story. He's, his, his era just bats so, so deep, which mm. is really cool. Uh, Day of the Daleks was good to see again, although I do think watching it again that it is probably the weaker of the Pertwee Dalek stories, which probably makes it the weaker of the... Dalek stories from the first three Doctors, if, I, if I'm honest, but that's not bad. That's a pretty good average for the Daleks if this is its 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 low point. Oh, for sure. I quite like it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like it. I just don't think it's quite as good as all the other Dalek stories because most of them are absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um, this is just mostly brilliant. Yeah. Um, Curse of Peladon, though, is absolutely brilliant. That just looks sumptuous. It's gorgeous. It, it works so well. Uh, it did occur to me watching it, though, that for all of the... This is an allegory of the UK's entry into the common market. Most of it has actually got nothing to do with the UK's entry into the common market. That's kind of a bit of a framing sort of concept. And then it's really just about this adventure on Peladon. And with the Smailians, yeah. it's it's not really quite the big allegory that I think, you know, fan legend says it is. But that was good. It's one of those things that people have seized on and just repeat Possibly they haven't even seen it themselves, but they just know to say it about that episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, the Sea Devils is really good. Um, I don't know whether that or Curse is the peak of the season, but it's definitely one of those two. It's it's a shame the Sea Devils don't quite have the characterization the Silurians did. They are sort mm. of generic monster sidekicks to the master, which is, you know, that's fine. That's what that season's doing, or that's what that story's doing, but uh, it's, it's okay. Look, I got to the mutants... I really did try and give the mutants uh, a, a, a fresh look, but by the end of part one, I was just sitting there going, well, at the end of part one, we've already had colonialism, apartheid, ecology, pollution, mutations, an assassination yeah. plot. Uh, you know, and I'm just like, this is this is kind of bonkers, and none of it's really making a lot of sense. And, and, and it just it is just that Bob Baker and Dave Martin just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. In this case, it is a bit of a mess, and it's also one of the very, very few Barry Letts produced stories that I think looks cheap. Mm. Now, a lot of Pertwee stories look like they were made in the 70s because they were, yeah. but they never really look cheap. They look like sort of the cutting edge of what the BBC in the 70s could do. This... Uh, just looks as though a lot of things just haven't quite worked. The, the set design just hasn't quite worked. The costumes are just a little bit ordinary, etc., etc. It all it all just doesn't quite come together. So that I, I still don't quite rate the mutants. Uh, got to the time monster, and mm -hmm. at the end of part two, I was like, "Gee, this is actually worse than I remembered it." <laughs> then I watched part three and four, and I thought, "Oh yeah, this isn't too bad. Maybe maybe it really is just the opening." And I've got to say, you get to part five. Yeah. And I thought, did somebody change the entire production crew, writing, mm. cast? It's like it's a whole new story. Suddenly when they get to ancient Atlantis, it's this brilliant, mythological, poetic, nuanced, emotional, really, really deep and interesting story with some really good production. And by the time you get to the moment where 
Dalios has been killed and Galea realizes just how the master is really manipulated in her into killing her husband and then he destroys her entire nation. Mm-hmm. I was really like, wow, this is really, really good. And then that that final scene with Kronos as as the angelic woman rather than just the guy in the bird costume. <laughs> you know, again, that was really quite profound. And that, that, that real idea of the, the twisted logic of Kronos that he'll, he'll ask very literally in a very twisted way, he'll grant what you ask for. I, I think, you know, it's really, really clever. So there's some great stuff in the Time Monster and there's some terrible stuff in the Time Monster. So a mixed bag for the season, fun to watch it back. I love the Pertwee era, even bad Pertwee's good. This is this is the least good Pertwee for me. Fair enough. Dave, while you were watching season nine, I've been making videos I put one out just recently. Did the Fifth Doctor really wear a cricket outfit that I've been talking about or perhaps threatening to release uh, <laughs> for have. a while? I believe you've seen it? I, I have seen it, and I was genuinely surprised by the fact the answer wasn't, did the Fifth Doctor wear a cricket costume? Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, you went into some really deep research there. I really did. I really did. There's 20 minutes of it, folks, so give that a look if that sounds interesting. And also, the other day, I got inspired and thought, you know what, with the Star Beast coming for the 60th anniversary, and I promised earlier in the show I'd talk about this, what if I get a bunch of panels from the 1980 comic strip? Actually, it's a reprint of that comic strip because it's in colour in Doctor Who Weekly. It was in black and white. And I'll take some photos of these and I'll throw them into the video. And basically, I'll tell the story of the Star Beast so that those out there who don't own copies of Doctor Who Weekly or any of the reprints of the comic can get a quick five-minute wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, appraisal of what the story is all about so that when it comes out this November they can say hey that stuck to the comic or perhaps more likely hey that didn't stick to the comic (laughs) but I'm thinking it'll be a bit of a mix I'm thinking it it will stick to the comic in some areas some of the scenes we've even seen in the trailer could come straight from the the comic so that is out there if you've never read heard of whatever the star beast I've made a video about it go to the Doctor Who show YouTube channel Thank you. Yes. Now, I haven't watched that one. Okay. Because my thinking is, when we come to do our hot take on the Star Beast, it will be interesting if you go in as now a bit of a, an, an expert on mm-hmm. the comic, and I go in having never read the comic, or knowing anything about the comic, and see right. if that skews our perceptions of, of this, this story. Interesting idea. Okay, so I'll, I'll mark you down to watch it after the 60th anniversary. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Good. Very good. Uh, as well as watching some Doctor Who, I have listened to some Doctor Who. I had a trip to Sydney and also a trip out to Bendigo over the last couple of weekends. So a bit of time to listen to some big finish. Because I was going to interview John Blum in Sydney, I did listen to John Blum's Fearmonger. And that was a very early big finish with Sophie Aldred and Sylvester McCoy. And yeah. I thought that hung together really well. It it actually um, felt as though uh, RTD pinched a couple of ideas from it for years and years, which was interesting. Um, so I enjoyed that. Uh, I then did follow up. I thought I really, you know, quite enjoyed that Sylvester Sophie one. What's another one I could listen to? And Colditz jumped out at me as like, oh, that sounds interesting. I, I like the idea of Colditz in World War Two. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to Colditz, and that's one of the best big finishes I think I've listened to. I thought that was a really strong adventure. The twists 
worked really, really well in that just as I was reaching the conclusion myself based on the clues and the evidence, it would then come onto the plot and be sort of revealed. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I like it. McCoy was great. Aldred was great. Uh, I, I thought that was a really, really strong big finish. I'm really pleased I listened to that one. Yeah, that's popular with fans too, I believe. Yeah, okay. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, and I also did a re-listen to the adaption of the new adventure, Nightshade, which I haven't listened to since it first came out. And look, that was very enjoyable. Uh, your mate Samuel Barnett is in it. And look, to his credit, I wouldn't have recognised him if I didn't know he was in it. He, he plays a very different character to what he normally plays. Interesting. And look, it's enjoyable. I, I do think that it suffers more than most of the novel adaptions from going over to audio. I think that the cuts that have to be made to the plot are a bit more obvious in this one. And, and once again, a bit like All Consuming Fire I mentioned a few months ago, a lot of that imagery that you can really conjure with with careful language and, and prose in the books doesn't quite come across the same right. in the audio, which which is a shame. I don't think it quite holds together as well as something like The Higher Science or Love and War, but it's still a great adventure. Excellent. Well, to round out short topics, I've got another bit of self-promotion. I don't normally self-promote like this, folks, but it's another box ticked, I suppose, in my Doctor Who fandom. I've had an article published in Celestial Toy Room, which is the fanzine of the Dwass over in the UK, and it's all about Doctor Who podcasting, what I think of it in general, the diversity in the space, how to find Doctor Who podcasts, all of that stuff. It's something I actually wrote a year ago, probably longer dashed it off one night, didn't think much about it. And um, Doc over at the Diddly Dumb podcast actually mentioned it to me on Facebook recently. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm not actually a paid up member of the Dwass anymore. So I had no idea that was out. Reading it over, I should have given it maybe another edit. There's even a few things the Dwass guys could have tweaked, like me mentioning that it was 2022 and things like that. (laughs) Oh, well, it's out there. And if you subscribe to... uh, Dwass and get Celestial Toy Room, you'll see an article from me in it and my thoughts on Doctor Who podcasting. Excellent. Well, we've smashed through that because we have a whole season of Doctor Who to dive into. We sure do. So, look, we put it out onto our Twitter feed a few weeks ago and said, which of our nominees do you want us to talk about? Now, Matt Smith's Season 7A got 12.9% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Davo's season 19 was winning for a while, but ended up with 19.7% of the vote. It was early leader. It was the early leader. Then the Pertwee season 8 took over the lead. That ended with 33.3% of the vote, but with 0.8% higher, Sylvester McCoy's season 26 was the winner at the point where the poll seized up and stopped taking votes. Yes, for the second time we've done a poll in recent times, folks, for some reason it would would not accept votes. So the actual result could have been different. It might not have been different. Who knows? But I've looked around Twitter troubleshooting sites and for the life of me, I can't find any information on this phenomenon, but it's happened to us twice now. It's a real thing. Yeah, we still had, I think, about 180 votes. So we were at the tail end of the, the, the poll. Oh, yeah. Look, it might have been another 20 votes, but with how close McCoy and Pert we were, it would have been fascinating to see what happened in the end. Yeah, look, it would have, but McCoy did win. And the reason why I nominated season 26 was, well, look, there are a couple of reasons. One, I know that there are a lot of our listeners who are of a similar vintage to us and for whom mm. McCoy was their doctor, particularly 
fans who grew up in the UK and so they didn't have the repeats that we didn't you know the McCoy era was mixed in very well with the Tommy era and the Pooey era and all the rest of it Pe- yeah. people for whom this was the McCoy era I think do hold in very high regard and I know a lot of those people do listen to us so I thought it was fair to give them a chance to hear something about their favourite Doctor but also this is a season that is almost mythical in status in Doctor yeah. Who fandom it's it's the one that everybody says is fantastic the show finished on a high the show was just getting great again when it got axed and mm. and I thought I haven't watched this season for a long time so let's watch it again kind of interrogate that and see what I think of it because I know I didn't listen to this when I bought the Blu-rays. I think I was either busy or I was probably watching another season for the, for the podcast or doing hot takes or something. Um, so I never got around to watching it. So this is the first time I've watched the Blu-rays as well. So it has been a while. And, and for at least one of these stories, it's been a very long time. And I'll talk about that when we get to it. Yes. Well, I had watched it when the Blu-rays came out. So this is my second time in a relatively short period, I guess. No, that's good. When did you see it first, Rob? Dave, I came to this season as a 14-year-old back in 1989 who'd been in fandom proper for some years at this point. So I wasn't seeing it for the first time with adult eyes by any means, but for sure as someone who wasn't really a young kid anymore and I was learning to be more critical of what works and what doesn't in Doctor Who and I guess TV in general and I knew who the current crop of writers were and who the script editor was and you know, how music is important to a story and making all those little connections, simple as they might seem, like, oh, the guy who wrote Remembrance of the Daleks is back. That makes me interested in seeing his story. The kind of stuff we do today, easy as breathing, but at this stage for me in fandom back in 1989, this is all stuff I'm still learning as I go from passive, oh, I'll watch anything sort of viewer to... I know a thing or two about this stuff, sort of fanboy. And vitally, can I underline, this is all pre-internet as well. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's back in the days of very primitive fandom, looking back now. Uh, I saw saw Battlefield and the Curse of Fenric at the local Doctor Who Club's Christmas event in December of 1989. So um, thanks to Mark from 42 to Doomsday's pen friend, we got those tapes out in time for our Christmas party. So I was there with 80, 90 fans in a very yeah. large hall at Melbourne Uni watching these two stories. And, and um, that was that's a really strong memory of mine. I believe that the club showed Ghostlight and Survival at a meeting in March, which... For the love of me, I don't remember being there. And I have no idea why. And apparently I'm speaking to Mark and Robin Richard. They all said that Paul Cornell came to that meeting. So I definitely don't wow. remember that happening. So um, I don't know where I was in March 1990, but I wasn't at the Doctor Who Club meeting. So I did see Ghostlight and Survival go out just on ABC TV at 5.30, Monday to Fridays. And that was in October, November of 1990. I did look that up and find that out. So we got it a full year after the UK, which which was about typical. Right, yeah. And just, just offhand, now that you mentioned Cornell in Australia, I think that might be the visit he made down here where he got the idea to set goth opera in Tasmania. Yeah, it could be. He made two visits. So it could be that oh, one or it okay. could be the next one. But but yes, he... Well, I know he made, he may have made more visits. I know he did two to Melbourne and, and visited the club. So... Mm. um. Yes, he had had been out there around that time. Yeah. Just to rewind, though, to my comment about this being all pre-internet, you would have to learn about stuff, folks. You'd have to learn through 
being in these fan clubs and talking to fans and seeing the pirate tapes and reading Dwim. We didn't have JNT turning up on breakfast TV to tell us the new season was coming or the Doctor appearing on Blue Peter. We didn't even have Blue Peter, <laughs> you know, full stop. So you really had to hunt for knowledge in those days and really sort of know what you were about to, to see this stuff in line with the UK or as in line with the UK as you could be. And I think that was part of the fun back then, Dave. You had to be active. You had to be on the ball. So it was kind of an exciting time when I think back to when I first saw this. Yeah, absolutely. We, we were that level of isolation sort of and separatism from, from UK fandom. Um, to give an example, when I was looking up some of the old local fanzines about this, the issue that would have been coming out as Survival was broadcasting in the UK still says definitively that the fourth season, the fourth story of this season is called Catflap. So <laughs> we didn't even have the correct story titles right up until broadcast. Yeah, I remember those titles, yeah. Yeah, so look, I, I have good memories of it. I do mostly remember enjoying it go out with a few important caveats, which we'll talk as we dive in. Now, Rob, do you want to start on Battlefield or do you want me to? I'll kick off, Dave. Please, go for it. I've, I've got a lot to say, but I'll do a little bit of a pause after I have my opening salvo. <laughs> okay. It will be a salvo. Because it's an interesting one here, isn't it? The story, I think, in Battlefield is quite sound. Personally, I like Arthurian legend. I like the way this uses it with a bit of a twist and brings back the brig and this updated, proper UN-style unit. All of that is really neat. But on the screen, it's just embarrassing to look at for long stretches. The, the acting is often woeful. If you said to me, pick a story from this season to introduce someone to Doctor Who with, it would not be this one. And yet this is the big, let's kick off the season story. <laughs> you know, you can just tell they want lightning to strike twice. Like, oh, Ben, you brought it home with the debut story of season 25. Let's do that again. And it just doesn't work. McCoy's doing his worst shouty acting of any story. The unit Range Rover looks like it was some kind of non-military green colour and they've tried to make it camo and it just looks woeful. It even has velour seats, Dave, betraying that it's <laughs> some kind of family wagon from somewhere just done up a bit. Yet elsewhere, they do have proper military vehicles in the episodes too. It's just strange and I'll stop there. That was a, that was a salvo. I have another. Okay. I went into Battlefield knowing that I enjoy this story and I've always enjoyed this story I also went in very aware that this is the one that a lot of fans don't enjoy and is fairly regularly picked out as the one that doesn't stand up to the quality of the rest of the season and indeed mm -hmm. last night when I put a quick poll on Twitter and said what's your favourite story from season 26 uh, Battlefield did come last uh, it was very tight between 4th, 3rd and 2nd and then a big gap in 1st one with about 50% of the vote but, right. but Battlefield was last and so I went into this one kind of trying to cast a critical eye over it. Now, mm. I will say I still enjoyed this story. I think for the most part, it actually looks quite good. I think the filming is really good. There's lots of great light. There's lots of good ideas. I like the Merlin concept, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. I, I think there's some good stuff in here. Angela Bruce is great as Bambera. There's, there's good stuff. But I did notice as I watched it that... I could see why this wouldn't necessarily work for everybody. And you are right. There's a real heightened manner 
Mm. and a laboured manner in the way that this story is done, as though a lot of people in the cast have decided, well, we're doing Arthurian legend, so let's pretend this is Shakespeare. And so <laughs> there's a lot of, we are acting on the stage acting. Um, mm. The chap who plays Anselin and the chap who plays Mordred, they, they have some good moments, but there is a lot of that. I, I think that McCoy and Aldred also do have some moments where there's it, it's just a little bit, oh, Oh, that was an interesting choice there, Silver. Oh, I'm not sure yeah. I like that. So I did see that thing, and I think if if that wasn't something that you were okay with, I could see that that would really take you out of the story. Now, I was okay with it. I could kind of almost kind of reveled in it in some ways. Um, so I like it. But, but, but yes, I think I appreciated more where people perhaps like yourself are coming from. Yeah, I mean, let's get into Salvo too, because you mentioned people doing it like Shakespeare. The battles are so badly choreographed. It's like what you'd see at the local amateur dramatic society. I used to remember in year 11 and 12, we'd get taken down there to see Shakespeare and there'd sometimes be sword fights and things. And they were just like the sword fights in Battlefield. Yeah, you can, you can, you can literally see, see the actors do pose one, pose two, yep. pose three. Yeah, yeah. And the knight's weapons look stupid with the sparkler effects. And when Bambera shouts that they should run into battle with style, I'm thinking, where the actual F did that line come from? Like, she's this serious by-the-book type for the whole show. Then suddenly she spouts this line, let's do it with style, like she's the Joker in a Batman comic or something. And it might have felt cool to type in the script for Aronovich, but on screen, it's totally cringe. And that's just like one thing I've pulled out out of many that I could mention. It's just like, oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. But I like the story, Dave. Yeah, look, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I, I think that Bambera is again one of those characters. You either you either get that, that we're just going for a bit of an over the top sort of fun character, or you go, no, this is stupid. And I think it's one of those lines you're going to fall one side or the other of, and, and that and that's fair enough. I, I do like the concept of the Doctor as being Merlin in the future, and mm-hmm. I do really like that denouement where the Doctor from the future has written himself a letter. And I think it's really good. And I don't think it's Battlefield's fault that that would become an over-the-top trope over the season and then a really overused and often badly used thing in the new adventures over the next 10 years. I think mm. it's not Battlefield's fault because I think it's really cleverly done here. And I like I like all of that aspect of the plot. And I like the Destroyer. I think the Destroyer's a really cool concept. Uh, looks great, acted great, lots of menace did strike me this time that he actually doesn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, I'm going to destroy the world soon, any time now. I'm yeah, really going to do it. I mean, I, I've always sort of thought of him as this thing that's sort of in the back half of the story, but really he's only in the last episode and he's only freed by Morgane for about a minute and a half before the Brigadier shoots him. Yeah. Apparently, they were going to do it slightly differently. He was going to be some sort of, like, uh, guy in a suit. And then he would transform into the Destroyer. But apparently that all got messed up and they couldn't do the effect or something. But apparently there was going to be some sort of transformation where he'd appear quite normally at first and then change. But regardless, it's an excellent costume. It does look very effective. Yeah, and I don't think the cliffhanger in episode three would have worked if it wasn't that mask. No, probably not. Here's a guy in a suit. Yeah, no, mm. it's interesting. <laughs> Sophie did say, this is my first of my Sophie said moments. Yes. Sophie did say that um, Ben Aronovich was really ashamed of this story and really didn't like how it turned out. And he's, he's still sort of 
you know, quite doesn't like to talk about it, which which I think is a shame. And if you listen to the commentary, uh, it's him and Sophie and Andrew Cartmell and, and, and Ben and Cartmell, you know, who were both incredibly young, very new writers when they wrote this, are looking back at the DVD commentary with sort of about 20 years of experience and saying, well, of course, now we'll do this differently. And of course, when it went from three parts to four parts, you know, all we did was sort of spread it out, whereas we should have made part one still part one and da 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 And then, you know, Sophie says in the commentary, well, I really enjoy it, guys. Like, stop bringing it down. But <laughs> but I, I, I can kind of see where Ben Aronovich um, would look back at it and go, you know, if I was doing this with a little bit more maturity and more experience, there is a layer of polish that I would put on it. But it's still, look, it's, it's not Remembrance of the Daleks, but I think it's still a pretty good script. And, and where he hits the lines, he, he hits them really, really well. Like, I, I, I always laugh at that, that line where Sophie comes out of the water. First of all, the moment where she just comes out of the, with the water with a sword is just really funny and, mm-hmm. and cool. But just that bit where she hands over Ansela and Excalibur and, here, you can be king of England. It's Excalibur. That's what I said, Shakespeare. Like, yeah. <laughs> I really like all those sort of lines. When he hits it, he hits it. He just doesn't hit it quite as often as he does in Remembrance. But but I, I enjoyed this clearly more than you did. Yeah, and look, again, I, I emphasize it's not the story itself. I think the story Aronovich is trying to tell is good. It's just the way it's thrown up there on the screen with the acting, the direction, the music, the sets. All of that stuff brings it down, you know. I'd be embarrassed by it too if I was the writer. I think this could look much better. Yeah, I don't think he should be embarrassed. I just get that he would write it better now. Okay. Uh, and I'm giving it a B. I'm giving it two out of five. Okay, cool. I'm sorry. That's, that's four out of ten. Okay, cool. <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to translate into the metric system. Okay, cool. A B and a two out of five. Mm-hmm. That brings me to Ghostlight. Yes. Now, just as I went into Battlefield as a story that I enjoy and I wanted to kind of try and appreciate why people didn't, I went into Ghostlight knowing this is a story that I have struggled with, but equally knowing that this is a story that its fans are very, very passionate about. Mm-hmm. People who like this story talk about it as the best of the season, often the best of the era, and in some cases the best of the series, yeah. or at least in the top tens. People are very, very passionate about this story. So I really went in trying to see it again through their eyes. And and I got part of the way there. I agree this is a brilliant production for the most part. It looks amazing. It looks great. It's very well, well filmed. The, the, the lighting is fantastic. The cast is fantastic. The ideas are really genuinely clever and there's a lot going on and there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to it. And some of those lines are really brilliantly clever and funny. Yeah, but I still don't think it quite works, and it still doesn't quite hold up. I think that the explanations are all there, but unless you really know what they are and you've had time to think about them, it's not quite there. There is a little bit too much in this story, particularly for a three-parter. Uh, the subplot of, for example, where they suddenly want to kill Queen Victoria because that means they can take over the world or something mm-hmm. like. I, I don't know whether that's meant to be an ironic thing or a, a parody thing, or there's another level of meaning that I'm missing there but to me I was just sitting there by part three going what's that about yeah and there's just a few too many of those little bits that don't quite hold up or that that don't quite work I, I mean for an example the idea that Josiah is the survey and control is the scientific control so so he goes out and turns into the native life form and then come back comes back and gets compared to control I think I think he's like what the, he's meant to be going on yes it's a clever idea. I don't think they do it on screen. Why does Reverend Matthew suddenly turn into a monkey? Like, why Why is that? Like, it's a great image. 
it's a great idea, but why why does that happen? Um, mm-hmm. And yes, there are lots of really cool lines, and some of them are brilliant and work well. There are others where I just go, that line has no relevance to what's going on at all. Mark Platt just wanted to throw in a clever line. Yeah, like with the Reverend, obviously they're trying to, to make a statement like, oh, look, the the man of God, we've, we've regressed him back to a monkey because humans came from monkeys, haha. But wouldn't he have regressed back into a, an infant if he was regressing? <laughs> you know, like how does his whole DNA change? Yeah, yeah. Look, as I say, I get what they're going for. I just don't quite get the how and the why. Mm. Just as I have that power, is it is it an effect of the ship underneath, or is it an effect of light? I, I I don't know. Again, it's a really cool image, and I remember watching it for the first time at the age of ten, going out at five thirty, and going, "Wow, that's a really striking moment." When they yeah. reveal him, they go, oh, "That's a really striking thing," and I think it's great. I I just watching it again, I'm gone. But why? Yeah. Dave, I think this one is the flip side of the coin to Battlefield. Mm -hmm. I I think the script is a little undercooked here, whereas I like the script and the story idea behind Battlefield. That's interesting. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that, to me, isn't thought through. Like, you talk about control. Why is control given a newspaper every day if she's control and locked up and not meant to be changing because she's control why are they giving her all this information from the world that she's locked up from i mean sorry to spoil it for people but why is that happening yeah and 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 again it's obviously because they want that really kooky imagery of the the victorian butler giving a monster a paper yes And, and it's a great image but it makes no sense. Given but it makes what no sense. Yeah, yeah, is. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, why is there a day staff who are normal and a hypnotized night staff? Why haven't the day staff found the night staff hiding in all the cupboards when they're cleaning? In fact, how much work is there for the day staff anyway? I don't know. There's also this sense of, uh, did I just micro sleep and miss something? <laughs> you know, all the way through it. And yet, in spite of all that, it looks great. And I think the acting is really good on the whole. Even the little musical number that comes across as jaunty yet disturbing. That's yes, great. Yes. And and as you've sort of already mentioned, this is all credit to the BBC being able to do these period pieces like no one else on earth. You want an old house interior? Boom. You've got it. From the creepy basement level with all the old toys through the house. The lighting, as you mentioned, is amazing. The way they let some scenes be really dark in that first episode is something I know Davo would rant and rave about as being impossible in his era. He'd say, oh, they can't do that. People complain that their TV sets were broken. Well, in fact, in fact, Janet Fielding on the behind the sofa makes exactly that point. Right. Yet here, some of the scenes are incredibly dark, Dave, and I think that's probably what you were referring to. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, all told, I like the idea of what Ghostlight is trying to do. I'm still gobsmacked that this was considered children's television in the 80s. And I was there for this, folks, back in the 80s. I'm still surprised. Compared to what passes for children's TV today, this is like something from another dimension. You really need to watch it closely. You need to think. And again, it looks great. I just think it's a shame the script needs to do more work to really get the story across in a more, I don't know, effortless sort of way so that people can just sit back and relax and enjoy it. Yeah, and look, I did for the first time watch the 
cut scenes that are on the Blu-ray. I don't know if they're on the DVD or not, but certainly they're on the Blu-ray, and, and the quality mm-hmm. on, of, of them is quite varied, so I see why they didn't do a restored version or a director's cut, or whatever you want to call it, an extended edition. Yeah. But but again, all, there, there are some little bits in there, like, for example, you, you get to see that the glowing eyes of the, the toys is Josiah looking through a little viewer thing and being able to see through them. So so that kind of means that it wasn't just being done for creepy. There was a practical reason behind it. Right. But 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 most of the rest of it is just sort of more of the same. It's it's some very cool lines cut away, but not explanation. So look, I, it's interesting you say the script because the script to me is very clever. Mm-hmm. But, but you're right. I think it, it, it doesn't quite hold together, as brilliant as a lot of the production is. Um, final question from me on this story, Rob. Yeah. Light. Like or didn't like the performance? I don't like it, to be no, honest. No, me either. Yeah. Um, I, I get that he's going for something a bit different and a bit kooky, but uh, I think that after a couple of takes, the director should have gone, no, can you can you lower your voice a bit and try and go a little bit more conventionally bad and, and and look good that they're doing something different and they're sort of playing against expectations mm-hmm. uh, and and we fans for who they go yeah wow that's that's brilliant that that's against my expectation that's different it's weird it's barbie it's it's it's, it's cool if it works for you that's great it clearly works for a lot of people uh, I, I was just sitting there going what is this guy doing mm-hmm. score dave uh look i'm giving it a c which okay. is higher than i used to have given it i, I have appreciated it more but i can't go higher than a c I'm at two and a half out of five, so slightly higher than Battlefield, but not much. Excellent. So, Dave, I guess I'll jump in first on Curse of Fenric now. I was saying earlier, if you said to me, pick a story from this season to introduce someone to Doctor Who with, it wouldn't be Battlefield. But it would be the Curse of Fenric. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting. Here we are again on location, pulling from mythology with soldiers, with fight scenes, all in very similar territory to Battlefield in some ways, yet it feels a hundred times better than Battlefield to me. The Doctor's not all shouty in a way that feels embarrassing. Everyone's delivering a fine performance from the bit players to the leads. This one just works, in quotation marks, just works. So, again, it's not a million miles from Battlefield in terms of the concept, but... It's so much better in terms of what ends up on screen. And maybe I'll stop there. I've got more to say, though. Yeah, look, when I put my Twitter poll up last night, the story that did get, I think, 48, 49% of the vote was The Curse of Frederick, and the other stories all split the remaining 50% very much evenly between them. So this Mm -hmm. was head and shoulders the favourite of the fans. I had not watched The Curse of Frederick for a very long time. Oh, okay. And the, the reason is I was very, very ratty that when the dvd came out it wasn't the extended version that we had on the vhs which i think is kind of in my mind the definitive version because i can remember watching the curse of fenric Mm -hmm. in a room with fans and and yes it looked spectacular it looked great It, it sort of was a really strong story but there was a bit of a consensus view in those next few months of None of this makes sense. None of this makes sense. What's going on? And I can remember watching it again when it was broadcast on the ABC a year later, watching it again just Monday to Friday, and just going, why did this happen? Why did that? Where did that come from? And then it was only a couple of years later they released the extended edition VHS tape, and suddenly everybody said, wow, 
this makes so much more sense. That extra nine minutes is all the explanation and it's mm. all the explanatory scenes put back in and suddenly the whole thing makes sense and it was absolutely brilliant. And I was a bit annoyed that that wasn't what they put out on the DVD. So I think I've very rarely gone back to it. It could be 10, if not 15 years since I went back and watched it because I just kind of didn't want to watch the DVD because it, it wasn't the right version in my mind. I thought it might have had those scenes like as one of those options to turn on or off. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. It's It's got a DVD edit and it's got the original broadcast. Is that what it is? Okay. That, I think that's what it is. But the Blu-ray has got the VHS extended edition. On a so, separate so, disc. On a separate disc. So yeah. I, that's what I watched. And having not watched this for possibly 15 years, I was absolutely blown away by how good this was. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I liked it. I didn't love it. I think it was just a little bit too dark, a little bit too adult, and some of the themes just didn't really make sense to me. Watching it now, you know, in my early 40s, it, it makes so much sense to me, and the themes they're going for, the ideas they're going for, the threads they're pulling on are just wonderful. Ian Briggs is doing some wonderful writing. You're right, the acting's really good, the cast is good, the music is stunning. I'd yep. forgotten just how good the music was. Yeah, there's there's more I can say, but that's my opening gambit. Okay. Well, I'll pick up the thread that... It's interesting, because if you do dig into the story, you still find bits that don't really add up. Not quite in the same way as Ghostlight, like I was sort of ribbing earlier, but... Because the story moves at such a fast pace, if you're not watching the, what do we call it, the special edition, the VHS cut? Yeah. And, you know, this story was edited to within an inch of its life to make the episode length, and I believe had been cut at the the script editing stage as well before they even filmed. So they'd had one go at cutting it, then they cut it again in the editing room. So there was even more they probably could have filmed, but didn't. Because it does move at this pace, it's it's easy to miss stuff, like how there's that family in the graveyard with the Viking names, even though the whole curse thing is about how the Vikings showed up and got killed off soon after landing in the UK. Even the guy carving the rune says, oh, I'm going to die tonight. And it sounds very grand and dramatic, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. Did these guys come and get wiped out by the Black Fog, or did they hook up with locals and have generation after generation of babies it's it seems to be saying both things happen the story needs both things to be true but they seem incompatible to my mind yeah i I picked up really properly for the first time on this viewing that the descendants like for example the the sundsvigs or the sundsvals whatever them yes you know what one of them married into either it's either ace's family or soren's family or something like that so like that's why soren and ace are wolves of fenric because they're descended from the vikings Mm. And, and 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 i think Soren says at one point, oh, my, my grandmother's English or something, and she's obviously meant to be a Viking descendant. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so picking up on that, the Vikings show up, do they, and they take some local women and have babies. Well, when this black fog comes, why didn't it kill everyone? Why, why did it only just kill the Viking guys, whereas the other people could go on and have more babies and end up as ace in the future? I don't yeah, get it. I don't get yeah. that at all. Yeah, the, a, 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 again, there's, there's some stuff here that I think is very reflective of Andrew Cartmell's script editing, where Andrew Cartmell, mm. as we know, was going for a very graphic novel type feel. Oh, and, yes. and that And that meant that there is stuff like that where it, you put it on screen and if you think of it as a panel in a comic, it, it, it's a great 
panel. It works really, really well. It, it maybe doesn't quite work as well on TV. And, and and again, I mean, even though Carmel's been the script editor now, he's in his third year, he still hasn't got the hang of how to ensure that a script is ready to fit into 24 minutes of television. Yeah. And, and you know, consistently, even in this season, stuff is just being cut and cut and cut because he's just left too much on there. As much as I love the Hamervores and as much as I love the great old one, I think, again, great costume, great monsters, the great old one does feel as though it's just an extra thing that's been thrown in that maybe if he was removed things would make a little bit more sense and be left room to breathe because mm-hmm. he really does just sort of arrive, wander around, get lectured by Fenric and then go, oh, you're a bit of a dick. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and Step it's into quite, this room. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I mean, I, I remember as a kid thinking that was very, very anticlimactic as an ending. Like the serpent's just like, I don't like you anymore and takes him to a room and gasses him. Of course, now as an adult, I appreciate so much more that that's not the, the, the conclusion. The conclusion is the moment where the Doctor has to shatter Ace's faith in him so she can stop believing in him so that the great old one can come close enough to Fenwick, etc., etc. Like, like mm-hmm. it, it, it's all, that, that's all very clever and it's all very, very work, well worked out. It's a, and it's a very, very emotional, impactful scene. And I really, really love it. But there's a lot going on. Oh, there really is. Weirdly, the best narrative of the three stories we've had so far, I think is probably Battlefield, despite how badly it comes across on screen. Fenric as a narrative, I think, is somewhere between that and Ghostlight, because I do think it has some issues. And then Ghostlight is just a dog with fleas, so it it comes last. Yet this, despite just sort of being middling between those two stories, I think comes across as very, very, very watchable on screen. Yeah, it's, it's one of those stories where everything kind of came together. And, and look, it does have the explanation that Ghostlight does. So I think it is better than Ghostlight comfortably in that sense. It's not as linear and, and easy to watch as Battlefield, so I get what you're saying. But, mm. but what does work here is, as I said, every aspect of the production just seems to have worked. The direction, yes. the music, the costumes, the location, the, the, the weather's absolutely perfect for it. It just it just works. Everything works really, really well. And look, when Sophie was asked, what's your favourite story? She did the whole, oh, you know, I could never pick one. But whenever she wanted to sort of use a story as the standard by which to judge everything else, she would always pick Fenric. Yeah, no surprise there. Yeah. I'm giving it an A. I'm giving it a four out of five. Ooh, 80%. Excellent. (laughs) How good is survival? That's my opening gambit. I absolutely love this story. I haven't Mm -hmm. watched it again for a while, but watching it back, I was just blown away. For me, this is my favourite story of the McCoy era and possibly my favourite story of the 1980s. I think that 1980s Doctor Who culminates in this story, which is gritty, dark, scary, clever, different. Mm. It's got a cool alien landscape. And then around that, you've got the production of just a wonderful score by Dominic Glynn. That that, that electric guitar sound we just haven't heard in Doctor Who before works so well. You've got the paint box atmosphere for the planet which they've tried it again in previous stories and you know, it was it was a bit off in mind warp and it wasn't bad in greatest show but here they can make paint box work and it looks great you've got those fire jets coming up through the the, the, the water mm. um and you've got anthony only as a restrained 
master. Mm-hmm. All of this set in a wonderful urban landscape. Um, McCoy and Aldred giving perhaps their best performances. And Doctor Who ends with the Doctor returning a Londoner back to London, mm-hmm. reflecting him starting by taking two Londoners away. Not that that was planned that way. Not that that was planned that way, but it just works out so well. I, I, I have huge, huge time for this. I'm not blind to its faults, and we'll discuss them, but How Good Is Survival is my opener. Where are you on it, Rob? Well, of all the episodes in season 26, and I did say Curse of Fenwick would be the one I would most recommend to people, this one feels the most modern. Yes. You know, Sylvester walking down a suburban street. Sylvester and Sophie going into a contemporary council flat and consoling a young girl. The cameo from Hale and Pace. All of this stuff was considered at least odd or much worse, actually, by fandom back in 1989, especially the Hale and Pace cameo. People were losing their over that. Yes. But when you watch it now, you think, this is prototype New Who. (laughs) You know, it really, really is. So, look, yeah, this is really quite good. Ace meeting up with some old pals, that sergeant at the drop-in centre who is like every mad Scotsman you meet who's had a brush of military service and now wants to punch on with everyone, you know. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've all met that guy. We, we all know that character who thinks that, you know, he's, he's done a two-week survival course and now he's, you know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cheetah people are quite an interesting idea. Like you said, I don't think it's perfect by any means either. None of these four stories are in their own ways, but this is very solid and very watchable, and I'll stop there. I was surprised by how brutal it was. I think I'd forgotten that. Stuff like Mitch just plunging a tooth into a wounded cheetah is just really nasty. Not that you see it. Not that you see it, but it, it's implied strongly enough that it's it's it's, yeah. it's there. You see shots of eaten cats. Like you just wouldn't do yeah. that today. Yeah. True. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's 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 again implied that Mitch probably didn't kill his parents, but he probably drove away his parents, and that's a really mm. nasty idea. This idea that this family's lost their son probably for two, three months. And suddenly he comes back and drives them away. That must be, you know, a really gripping sort of thing. So mm. it's got these really dark ideas in there that I think are really, really effectively done. That survival of the fittest motif is really, really effective. Kara's death is, is really nasty. One of the nast- master's nastier real moments. And it's not done with a tissue compression eliminator or a laser. It's just him driving a knife into her. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's really good. But, but I want to really take a moment to praise the direction I've long thought that Alan Waring is a real undersung, undercredited director in Doctor Who's history. And I think it's only because his big successes are in the McCoy era, where a lot of people weren't watching, or fandom was incredibly dismissive at the time. And he doesn't quite get the credit that you know others do. But the direction on this, the point of view shots are just fantastic. The way he uses the landscape of the Cheetah People's Planet is really, really good. Um, that moment where the camera is over Ace's shoulder, then just rises up, and then you cut to a little sh- shot looking up at the cheetah on the horse. Yep. Just really, really good direction that just really adds to it all. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by that. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, one of the overriding feelings I get when I watch this now, though, which I obviously didn't have in 1989 for obvious reasons, is that this is perfectly good Doctor Who, and yet the series is about to get whacked on the head. 
I mean, to go into all of that is an episode in itself. I appreciate that. So I just mentioned it here as a feeling I get when I watch this now. And I think about all the Doctor Who we could have had into the 1990s, maybe in some sort of parallel universe where it did continue on from this. Look, I think that is correct. Look, look, maybe maybe let's just wrap up survival for a second before we go into some more general comments. Sure. Uh, sure. Look, look, I don't have anything else to say. I think it's brilliant. Uh, I think it's Ailey's best performance. I think it's McCoy's best performance. I think it's Aldrin's best performance. Great direction, great look, great music. Everything works together. It is, as you say, the template for New Who. It's an A-plus from me. It's a three and a half out of five for me, just a shade under Curse of Fenric. Yeah, look, 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 fair enough. So, so to cut back as we were sort of doing to a bit of our... Our, our summation, I think that fandom is right about this season. This is the best season in quite a while. It's, I think, comfortably the best of the McCoy seasons, and I think that's particularly contentious. Uh, I personally think it's better than the two Colin Baker seasons. I don't think that's hugely contentious, even if you like Baker. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you could say the production levels in this season are definitely better than what we had in Trial and definitely better than what we had in Colin's first season. Do you think it's the best season, sort of, you know, going back to Tom? Well, that depends on how you feel about the Davo era. I, I think season 21 is pretty good, so I'm I'm not going to say that. But it is, it is four very, very well-made stories, one after the other. And different people have different favourites and different least favourites, but they are all extremely well-made, which is just, let's be frank, unusual for those last few years of Doctor Who. And we've got to give it credit for that. Mm-hmm. I've got to give Andrew Cartmore credit for finding the writers that he did. And again, Ryan Monroe, first story for the show. Mark Platt, first story for the show. Ian Briggs and Ben Aronovich, their second scripts, but also people that Andrew Cartmore found. So his, his thumbprints are, are all over this and it does work. The one thing I will disagree with him though, and I did watch the Endgame documentary on the blu-ray after i'd finished watching all these stories and that is Mm -hmm. that is i think the second best documentary that the the dvd range did i think trials and tribulations on the trial set is the best but this is this is a very close second and and i agree a lot with a lot of what andrew carton was trying to do and trying to say in this season the one thing i disagree with him about is he was saying that the doctor had become or or the doctor wasn't powerful enough the doctor had become sort of a a wanderer and somebody that things happen to and the doctor needed to take control of his destiny now I kind of disagree because I think at the heart of Doctor Who is that idea that he is just a wanderer in time and space and, and things do just happen to him. And, and I think that perhaps Carmen was getting away from that. However, I will acknowledge that we're now 26 seasons into a TV show. <laughs> yeah. And so the, 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 thing, the idea of let's do something different is something that was worthy of doing. And even if I don't quite agree with Cartmel's direction or... or um, his reasoning on that, I, I totally get why he's wanting to shake it up. So that's why we do get uh, the Doctor has set up himself as Merlin in the future. The Doctor has brought Ace to Gabriel Chase for very particular reasons to manipulate her. The Doctor has come to find Fendrick, etc., etc., etc. And Survival's the only one where he just rocks up in Perivale and stuff happens to him in a very traditional Doctor Who way. And, and maybe it's that mm. traditional Doctor Who format that, that just lifts it a little bit above the other one's for me I, I think it's a very good experiment i'm glad that they did it this time i don't know if i'd like to see it continue the same way had they done season 27 very interesting i've given my scores throughout this so anyone listening will know i'm rating curse of fenric the best survival second then i think it's a bit of a drop down to maybe ghostlight in third and battlefield in the last place but all of that said 
If you were to read these as target novels, I think those bottom two would rise up quite a bit. And frankly, we might see some of the positions shift a little. And in saying that, we might have listeners out there saying, well, Rob, that's that's the whole point. It's the story, stupid. Look past the velour seats in the Range Rover in <laughs> Battlefield. Ignore Sylvester's inability to sound convincing when he shouts. You know, think about the stories. And in that sense, yeah, I, I rate Battlefield as a story over survival, as a story. But we're here to talk about, and we've been talking about what's on screen and how writing, actors, production also come together to make this cohesive whole so that no matter what I think of the Battlefield narrative, it can't be better than survival to me because it just looks and feels so wrong so often. And while survival has some limitations too, it's nothing compared to Battlefield on the screen. So I keep coming back in in my thoughts to how what I think of the stories isn't quite what I think of the TV episodes. They're, they're sort of separate in my head. Yeah, look, I think that you do need to talk about the visuals because all four stories, in my opinion, do look great. And I mentioned way back at the start of this episode how almost all of Barry Letts's Doctor Who never looks cheap. It looks like it's era, but it doesn't look cheap. And I think this was the first time for a long time that Doctor Who didn't look as cheap as he had looked. And look, mm. television was starting to move on in the 90s. And and, 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 and again, it's a, it's a shame that just as special effects and CGI was coming down in price to the point where a show like Red Dwarf a year later could use it in a really, really effective way, and Doctor Who therefore could have as well. Um, and suddenly maybe it could have done proper sci-fi within a BBC budget. You know, it's just ironic that it, it went just as that budget and sci-fi and technology thing were all aligning. Um, mm. I think I think they do look, look better than Doctor Who's looked a long time ago. But I will also say they are four brilliant target novels. Uh, I think it's Mark Platt who actually does the adaption of Battlefield, and he does a really, really good adaption. I think it's one of the most common pieces of fan wisdom in fandom that the Ghostlight novelization is brilliant and explains everything that isn't there on the book, Uh, on the screen, and that that is correct. I remember reading that when I was 11 uh, on a trip to Europe, in fact. And and, and yeah, suddenly I'm going, oh, I get it. It all makes sense now. Uh, Fenric (laughs) is a, a top five doctor who target novel like it's just fantastic and it's one of those ones like remembrance that goes off into these little vignettes about the background characters and so you see judson and millington at school together and all that sort of thing and yeah you know and survival like i mean rona Munro's a fantastic writer and i love her other work for doctor who are eaters of light i i went into this asking the question is season 26 as good as fandom says it is i, I think the answer is yes i think that McCoy is at his best here, but I know people love McCoy. Um, he's not one of my favourite Doctors, and I do think there are moments here where his limitations as an actor do come through. Mm. But equally, the production team has worked out how to write good McCoy. So they've worked out if you give him something dark and brooding and quiet, he'll do a really, really good job. If you give him something angry and emotive and, and, and excitable, he'll, he won't do as good a good job. So they, they've, they've worked out how to write him. And again, they've worked out how to make good Doctor Who. It is, it is not a coincidence that all four of these stories are set on Earth uh, and all of them at near contemporary or near past and there's no there's no big sci-fi stuff you know battlefield set 10 years in the future you know just just enough to have a couple of jokes about the king and a 10 pound coin and yeah, and, yeah. and you know it's basically the present survival's the present 
Curse of Phoenix, World War Two, and Ghostlight's Victorian because they've worked out. Ben Aronovich has said this in the documentary. They've worked out. You say to the BBC, do a Victorian, and they go, great, we'll just go and open the cupboards and bring yeah. all of these props and all these costumes and all these sets and everything, and it looks fantastic. You say to them, go 10 years in the future, and it looks terrible. They've, they've worked out how to do Doctor Who for this cast on this budget, and they've nailed it. Yeah, I enjoy this season, Dave. I've I've seen it start to finish many times over the years, and as I said at the start, it's from pretty much my imperial phase in in fandom. <laughs> yeah. And while I would never say McCoy is my Doctor, I do have a massive soft spot for his Doctor and Ace as a pairing, who I think work together the best of any Doctor companion matchup since probably Tom and Lala probably i think they work better than anything in davo's era i think they work better than anything in colin's era and this is their imperial phase so it's it's hard not to be terribly fond of this season as a piece of work overall even if i have picked out issues here and there everything that that production team and that cast had been working towards for literally three seasons 12 stories does come together and does align I think that it absolutely reaches its peak in survival and it's a terrible shame that it then has to stop. Well said. So thank you listeners for voting for season 26. Yes, absolutely. It was no hardship to watch, I assure you. Not at all. Now, at this point, we come to our letters. And, Rob, we've had a bit of a chat offline Mm -hmm. because, thank you, listeners, we have had many, many emails coming. I think we've broken our podcast record, which is fantastic because we love to hear from you and we love that listener involvement. Um, The only problem is it would add about half an hour to the podcast if we read every line of every email. So we have properly agonized over this and we have made the editorial call to truncate a couple of these emails because we we do love hearing from you and we, we do regret having to do this, but we are very aware of the timing of our podcast. We're very aware of how long each segment goes for and how long we talk about things and how long the full package is. And we don't like it blowing out over a, a certain time. So for this time, for the first time, we're going to truncate a little bit. If you hate this, please give us that feedback and we can sort of throw it around and see what we're doing because we, we we don't like doing this, but I guess we're, we're, we're going to try it and see. Yeah, we're going to take the best from each letter and try not to lose any meaning and uh, run with it, see what happens. Too easy. So, Rob, do you want to start with the first one that opens? Dear Rob. Okay, dear Rob, I attended the Sirens of Audio Sophie Aldred event a fortnight ago, and they screened your I Was a Teenage Time Lord special. I can actually remember this when it was screened, and remember it live after school. I would have loved to have been on it, and thought I was one of the few Doctor Who fans out there. I thought, who are these people, and where did they come from? I didn't realise there was some kind of clipgate controversy when the answers were given away before the broadcast. I thought you acquitted yourself well, as you look like a cricketer and someone who would have been on our school's footy team. Probably also aided and saved from ridicule because you didn't wear the celery stick. (laughs) Well well spotted. Uh, It's nice that you still stuck with the show over the years. I think at the time I had just discovered the Doctor Who Fan Club of Australia and attended my first convention, Console 88, with Katie Manning. 
I went with a school friend. Doctor Who wasn't as popular or acceptable as it is now, and there weren't too many Aussie fans, well, at least to me at the time. Anyway, I just want to say thanks for the blast from the past, which was a little corny at the time, but so worth it to mention and promote the show. I didn't think I'd see the quiz again and probably missed a lot of what was going on because I was excited to see Remembrance of the Daleks screening right after it. Cheers from Anthony. And cheers, Anthony, for watching the video at the Sirens of Audio event. I'm, I'm very happy when anyone watches something I make. And uh, yes, Console 88 was one of my first big conventions too in Sydney, so that's quite neat. Oh, there you go. I, I didn't see that one because I was in Melbourne. Correct. <laughs> Uh, our next email comes from Steve Clamp, who writes, Hi, Robin Dave. I hope all is well. We've spoken over Twitter a few times. Just wanted to get in touch before your season 26 review. Since finding your podcast about two months ago, I've listened to no less than 22 of your shows. Most, wow. <laughs> impressive. Most are lengthy ones, too. Love them all. And most of my views matched with yours, which is a bonus. Season 26 is so special to me. I only started watching Doctor Who in 1987, when my older brother convinced an 11-year-old me to watch The Regeneration. So my first episode was Time and the Rani Part 1. I adored it. And the great thing was, it turns out nearly all Doctor Who is better than that. So Season 24 <laughs> made me a fan. Season 25 blew my mind, especially Remembrance of the Daleks, of course, from that almost Star Wars-esque opening shot to the Time Will Tell It Always Does. It was something really special. Then, after a long wait, with just my Betamax recordings of season 25 to live off, 26 came. At the time, Battlefield was a little disappointing for me. After the big budget look of Remembrance, this felt quite cheap, especially the awful spaceship model and the sparkler guns. Oh, mm -hmm. and the dreadful part one cliffhanger. But now I can ignore those elements and I adore it. Great characters, the Brigadier, who I had no previous reference for in 1989, and lovely touches of light and shade. Ghostlight followed. In 89, I didn't really understand it, but I liked the creepiness, and now, as an adult, it's an absolutely wonderful piece of television. Then The Curse of Fenric. I love this so, so much. It's a straight tie with Remembrance to be my all-time favourite Who. McCoy, wonderfully devious. The production looks big, expensive, and full of atmosphere. And what a cast. And then Survival. I really enjoyed this, but it's another that gets even better with age. How good is Sophie Aldred? I was lucky enough to present a TV show on the same station as her in the 90s. I had to hide how utterly starstruck I was. I even pretended I only vaguely knew she had a Who connection. <laughs> to me, season 25, even Silver Nemesis, and 26 are Doctor Who at its most consistently brilliant, perhaps only matched by season 13, or at a push, season 7. Anyway, looking forward to your review. Keep up the great work, Steve Clamp. And look, Steve, I think you're right. Consistent is a word we haven't used, but probably should have. It's, it's very accurate. Absolutely. And if our UK listeners are thinking, oh, our local newsreader is called Steve Clamp. That is Steve Clamp from ITV who has written in. For some reason, the Doctor Who show has a lot of media types who follow us, especially newspaper types in Australia and uh, Asia. And Steve follows us uh, from the UK uh, working over there at ITV. And it's very interesting to hear these comments from Steve about the season because he is contemporary to me and maybe just a few years older than you, Dave. And I think a lot of what we were saying comes across that at the time episodes were like this, but now with time, we think of them differently. Yeah, they have definitely aged very, very well. A lot better mm. than a lot of other 80s who, dare I say. 
Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Steve, for that. I have an email from Nick in Tasmania who posts as Baby Hoovian on Instagram, if anyone out there follows Baby Hoovian. That's Nick from Tasmania. He says, Hi, Robin, Dave. Just listened to your Mandalorian Series 3 review, and I've got to say I was similarly disappointed in the show. It felt like in Seasons 1 and 2 the characters drove the plot, but this time around the plot was driving the characters. For me, the relationship between Mando and Grogu has always been the highlight of the series. Series 1 came out when my son Leo, the baby Hoovian, was born, and I could really relate to Din being thrust into fatherhood and the upheaval it causes. I think Grogu does develop his character. He's now a toddler, and nothing demonstrates this better than him gaining the ability to say no, cheekily and defiantly. Finally, a point on the show being about Din and not Bo-Katan as the name of the show is The Mandalorian. Could the plural of the species actually be Mandalorian, meaning the show is about their whole people and culture? Just a random thought. As always, love the show and all the side quests that come with it. Nick from Tasmania. Well, Nick, I will say in that Mandalorian episode, I did comment that they would should have called it The Mandalorians because I think that would be the plural of Mandalorian. I'm kind of blown away by that insight, uh, much the same as when I was, you know, about 30-something and suddenly realized that Return of the Jedi didn't mean Return of the Jedi plural. It meant Return of the Jedi Anakin Skywalker singular and had completely misunderstood that title for about 35 years. That's all right, Dave. That's all right. Uh, we have one from Neelers in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. Uh, lovely little part of the world, Northern Ireland. I, was, I went there in December one year. It was a little bit cold, but lovely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, f- you feel history in Northern Ireland. Well, some of my family's from there, Dave. Well, there you go. Yes. He opens, what about your fellas? This needs an accent. Can you do an accent? Um, it's, it's Northern <laughs> Ireland, so it's, 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 the, it's the sad version of Irish. What about your fellas? There you go. Hope you're well. <laughs> I won't go any further <laughs> like that. I'm, I'm currently on a train from Newcastle upon Tyne to London to watch Arsenal. I've been away all weekend and I'm seriously hungover. But here I am <laughs> listening to your take on Mandalorian Season 3, What a Hangover Cure, and I'm loving it. Agree with so many of the points you both make, albeit I did still enjoy the series, but I do think it was weaker than the previous two. Also agree that the whole Grogu arc has run out of steam. But anyway, I'm going to crack open another can here and enjoy the rest of the show. Looking forward to the upcoming shows and hearing about Dave meeting Sophie Aldred. Take care, guys. Nellas in Carrick Fergus. Lovely stuff. Have one on me, Nellas. I think I wrote that back at the time. Nice. And to round us out, we have an email from David Harmsworth, who's going to talk about three of our recent episodes. Hi, Rob and Dave. Hope all's well down under. I've just completed the third episode of the epic Alternate Galaxies trilogy that you and Dave recently recorded covering Ultraviolet, Picard Season 3 and The Mandalorian Season 3. First off, that's a very impressive run rate, so thank you for finding the time for all this bonus content. Also, as ever, they were three really fascinating and thought-provoking discussions which prompted me to share some spoilery thoughts of my own. Episode 1, The Vampire Menace, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I loved Ultraviolet when it originally aired, and having now rewatched it for the first time since, I actually felt it stood the test of time pretty well. I nostalgically really enjoyed the heavy X-Files influence with so many dark scenes in both senses of the word, and the overall bleakness of a bigger picture that we don't fully see and our heroes maybe can't fully address. I love the cleverness and thought that was put into how vampires, sorry, leeches, would work in the modern world. 
and I relished the lack of heavy-handed exposition. Your differing takes on Mike's character arc, comma, lack of, especially got me thinking. For me, all four of the main team are compelling characters because each, in their own way, is damaged. I also didn't mind that the quartet largely end the series unchanged. Pierce aside, having faced up to his cancer diagnosis, a subplot I'd forgotten, but which resonated with me on rewatch because of my own diagnosis. For me, that lack of change just leans into the consciously bleak tone and underscores that the battle between humans and Code Fives is a war of attrition that's far from over. My only real gripe is the daftness of Jack's clothes being resurrected along with his body <laughs> in the finale. Surely they could have got away with a more plausible naked Jack with careful camera angles and then implying he's nicked a new suit by the time he taunts Mike at the end. Ironic, given that Joe Ahern later managed it with a naked, different Jack in Bad Wolf. All good points. Yes. Episode 2, he's called this one Attack of the Changelings. I see where he's going, yes. I do too. Totally agreed with your joint take on Picard Season 3. One aspect which stood out for me was calling out the challenge of reconciling the two characterizations of Picard across the TNG series and movies, the one who thought his way out of problems and the one who fought his way out. I'd never clocked that before, but it really clicked into place after this podcast. Much as I undeniably love the fan service of the later episodes as the whole TNG crew reunited, I actually preferred the first few episodes where the situation was so desperate and the peril and tension felt much more real. Genuine, how do they get out of this moment and who's behind all these mysteries? Whereas, sadly, it's not hard to be a bit bored by the Borg now, and once everyone's on the Enterprise Bridge, it soon feels locked in that we're headed for a heartwarming ending, where everybody lives, mostly. Plus, the plot holes come thick and fast once you stop feeling and start thinking. How did they fly a whole starship with just a few of them on board? Overall, I really enjoyed the ride, and it was a big step up from the first two seasons. And it's always a joy to have Patrick Stewart on our screens. All correct. Into our final episode three. What's this one called? Revenge of... The Moth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, what you and Dave had to say about Mando season three eloquently and passionately summed up most of my own take on the show. It did feel very disjointed and badly paced. I'd have loved to see the rush storyline of the final two episodes given more breathing space over perhaps three or four episodes. As you said, the season was schizophrenic as to whether it was a set of standalone adventures or had an arc. In that respect, it reminded me somewhat of 7A and 7B of New Who. Quote, we're moving away from complicated arcs to have Monster of the Week episodes, except we're going to drop Clara, well, one version of her, into episode one as the start of what turns into be possibly the most confusing arc yet. End quote. I do have a different take on Din Djarin's personal character arc, though. I know what you mean about feeling shortchanged when your kick-ass hero suddenly gets sidelined, but arguably, when we first meet this hardened, cynical loner, it's not necessarily a life he loves. So actually, the idea that over time he does the wolf cub thing with Grogu, then partners with a buddy in Bo-Katan, and yearns for a family community, more Mandalorians, and ultimately wearily wants to take a bit of a step back from his old life, it sort of makes sense. And call me old-fashioned, but I got a real sense of closure and happiness from the final scene on Mando's farm. <laughs> so 
I'd almost argue that both Mando and Grogu's story should stop there and season four should reboot the franchise along new lines. My fear though is that whatever they do with season four it will suffer from being a slave to setting up the other series and future movies. This is the way from David Harmsworth. Thank you for all of that feedback David and yes it was a, a bit of a I won't say a slog, because it was fun, but it, it was a, a lot of time and work to put together all those extra episodes. Yes, we won't be doing that in June, for example. <laughs> no, no, we won't, although we will be back to talk about Sophie soon. Yes, we will. <laughs> uh, so thank you once again to everybody who wrote in. Please do write in. Please do keep writing in. Please don't be put off by the fact we've had to truncate a couple. We will try to find the balance and try to keep as much involvement as we can. We do appreciate your comments here and on the social media. Yeah, absolutely. Now, next month, Rob, we are going to do one of those topics which I really enjoy. Once once every year or so now, we like to talk about one of Doctor Who's writers and their particular work, which is something that I find really fascinating. But we thought we were due to go with a new series writer, and we were Mm. chucking around who to do. And, you know, you can't really do RTD or Moffat or Chibnall because they've written so much. They're showrunners more than they're writers. And then we thought... Let's do Mark Gaddis, because as I think we'll discuss next month, he's a fascinating writer because I think every Doctor Who fan has a list of two or three Gaddis stories they love and two or three Gaddis stories they hate. But those lists are very rarely the same between any two fans. (laughs) He is Mr. Marmite. He is, but, but not consistently. It's a different flavour of Marmite for everybody. So I'm really looking back forward to going back and looking at some of his work and talking about Mark Gaddis, the writer on Doctor Who. Yeah, you didn't need to twist my arm on this one, Dave. I'm looking forward to it too. No, absolutely. I might even try and reread one of his books if I can in the next few weeks. That'd be pushing it for me. Yeah, that might just be something I'll do and I'll I'll make comment on. There's no no obligation there. Okay. (laughs) So, look, we've talked about season 26 tonight. We'll be back with Mark Gaddis next month. We will, of course, have our usual list makers coming up in a couple of weeks' time, this time talking about the top five story scores. We do plan to be back sometime in the next week with our Sophie Aldred chat. But until then, you've been Rob. You've been Dave. And we'll speak again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>